Uh, my name is Aman. I'm a group product manager at Arise, um, focusing on LLM, so kind of leaning into our LLM product line. Uh, and I'm joined by Sally Ann. Uh, Sally Ann, do you want to give a brief intro about yourself? Yeah. Um, hey, everyone. My name is Sally Ann. I'm a customer success engineer here at Arise. Um, I work with teams supporting them onboarding Arise, all different use cases from LLMs uh, to your traditional ML use cases. So uh, great to be here with you today, Aman. Awesome. Yeah. And Sally Ann leans in a ton on the product side too. So it's kind of, be, it's going to be fun for, um, you know, us to kind of take a bit of a technical take, but also I think we're, we're going to do this one a little bit, you know, a little bit differently than some of our previous, um, you know, paper readings. Um, so we will go through uh, the technical report and through, um, you know, breaking down technically uh, the model that we're going to be focusing on today, but we'll also make it a little bit, uh, you can kind of think of it as like almost like a practical, like how do I actually take you know, the the sort of yeah, the, the learnings from this and actually deploy them, you know, in my own environment or kind of play around with some of the models that we're going to be showing. So um, cool with that, let me share my screen. Um, as always, if you have any questions, feel free to drop them in the chat and the Q&A section. Um, we'll be taking questions directly from there live as well. So happy to, to kind of pause at any point um, and take those questions. Cool. So today we're going to be focusing on um, SLMs or small language models versus LLMs. And we're going to be talking specifically about Phi2. Um, so this is a relatively new small language model. And we'll talk about the definitions and what, what we mean by SLM and LLM. Uh, and we'll maybe use a couple of examples to illustrate. Um, Phi2 was released by Microsoft in uh, December um, it's an open source model, MIT license. They posted it for for folks to use um, for for you know kind of fully open source. Um, so pretty pretty awesome to kind of see this type of research entering the public. You can kind of think of it as comparable to like a Llama Seven B or a Mistral Mistral model, but we'll get into the nuances of what's actually different about this model um, in just a sec. So yeah, um, so yeah, so we'll be covering a little bit of an overview of SLMs versus LLMs. You know, what are the differences between the two? What makes Phi two exciting? Some of the paper, paper, uh, you know, sort of the paper takeaways. A little bit around evaluations, of course, and then we'll actually do a bit of a practical example of deploying uh, an SLM locally and what that means. Cool, um, Sally, and you want to kick us off with a little bit of a primer on SLMs and LLMs? Yeah. Um, so I feel like for, you know, last year, year and a half, we've been hearing so much about LLMs. Uh, they take up a lot of our time. Um, in the last few months, there's been this emergence of this small language model. So I think it's important to kind of talk about the differences between these two. Uh, both are very useful for applications, but uh, there are some nuanced differences. So starting with the small language models, uh, one key thing about these is that they're trainable with a lot less data. So um, looking at 5.2 or 5.2, I believe it was like 140 trillion token or billion tokens, something like that. And then when you look at like, you know, GPT-4, it's like in the trillions. Um, so a lot less data is actually needed to train these models. Uh, they're also a lot smaller. So uh, Phi2 is about, um, I believe it's what, 2.7 billion uh, parameters. Um, so it's quite smaller than some of our bigger models. And generally speaking, there's there's a wide range of these small language models. You have some that are like 100 million parameters, um, some that can be, you know, 13 uh, million parameters there. Our billion parameters. Um, 
So they're just a lot smaller in size. And because of that, they can be deployed locally. Uh, so that's something that Amon is going to cover on later on. But that's a super cool uh, aspect of these small language models. That means they could be potentially deployed on the edge, which is super cool uh, and definitely not possible for your large language models. Um, they're really easy to fine tune for specialized tasks. Um, and they're best for those simple tasks with like a narrow domain. So um, that's a little bit about the SLMs. And then for large language models, you all might be a little bit more familiar with these, but I'll Covered anyway. Um, so these are trained on larger data sets. Uh, they have tens of billions of parameters, um, very large memory and compute requirements because of their size. And because of that, they're going to require substantial infrastructure for you to deploy them. Um, they do have a larger context window, which is helpful for some tasks. And that's something that is sometimes seen as a, an edge over the small language models, but it really does determine or is determined by what task you're trying to uh, complete with these models. Got it. Got it. So is it fair to say that, you know, LLMs feel a bit more like, are they kind of more general purpose and SLMs are more specific? And, and that's kind of like one way to think about it if I was going to pick the right model for the task. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. And I think it's also a, another way to think about it is when you have kind of a simple task that you just don't require the power or the compute that an LLM is going to give you. Um, that's another way to kind of think of it. So those smaller, simpler tasks um, like coding, I think is a really good kind of example mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, got it. So like something constrained, something with the, you know, where the bounds are well known, you know, you're not mm -hmm. trying to go from like one domain to a different domain, like, okay, now code in like, you know, 18th century, like German or something right. like that, <laughs> which maybe a large language model would be able to do, or at least be able to transfer, you know, domains quite well, this is going to be more, you know, kind of specific tasks, you know, maybe even, you know, if you fine tuned it specific on that data mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, it's perfect for that. Awesome. Um, yeah, uh, for free Sally. Yeah. yeah. So in uh, the the Phi Two blog, um, it talks about the fact that it kind of borrowed from an initial paper that they did for you know five. Phi 1 and Phi 1.5, which is textbooks is all you need. And what this really focuses on um, is kind of a, an idea that we've heard throughout machine learning history, which is garbage in, garbage out. And what their whole premise of this is, is that they were able to train a small coding uh, model with a small amount of data. Um, and they did this by using a really high quality uh, set of data. So they called it um, the code textbook. Um, that's where the title comes from, you know, textbook is all you need. And basically the code textbook is um, comprised of three parts of data. So the first one is this filtered code language data set. Uh, the second is a synthetic textbook data set. And then the last is a synthetic exercise data set. I'll talk about um, these in a little bit more detail on the next sides, but the idea is, is they really put effort into making sure that the data that they were going to use this train or to train this model was super high quality. So it had just the information that they were needed. They were training it for um, a coding bot. So, you know, it's got to be able to learn how to code. Um, and their whole kind of hypothesis is just that a lot of muscle models are suffering uh, from poor quality data in the training data set. So they aim to improve that by making sure that they uh, kind of took control over what data they were going to use for training. And they found that using a high quality data set um, that these small language models can actually achieve the state of the art performance on these specialized tasks. So in this example, it was coding, but you can think that you could do this with any kind of small language model uh, by making sure that you use the high quality um, data. 
And if you want to go to the next slide, Simone, I can kind of walk through yeah. what these examples look like. So um, there are some coding um, data sets that are used commonly, you know, it's the stack, stack overflow. Those are very common for these coding tasks. Um, and what they found is by doing like a random sample and taking a look at these examples, uh, not all of them are really like high in educational value. And so these are two examples of what they mean by like high educational value. The one on the left, it would be a lot easier for an LLM or even a human to learn how to code looking at that example versus the one on the right. And so you can think about it, if it's going to be hard for a human to learn from these textbooks examples, it's definitely going to be hard for an LLM to live or a small language model even uh, to learn from these examples. So what they did was they did a combination of kind of manually annotating some of these as well as using GPT-4 to um, annotate. And what they did is they filtered out those low educational value samples and only included these high educational value samples in their training data set. That's the first component of their te uh, code textbook data set. The second is the synthetic textbook. So they used an LLM here to generate these short textbooks um, for coding examples. So there's an example here. It's defining on how to um, do singular and non-singular matrices. Um, and it just includes that little code snippet on exactly how to do this. So uh, there were a number of examples that they did this. Um, and I believe they used uh, GPT-3 uh, to generate these synthetic textbooks. This is the second component. Um, and so again, making sure that these are all high quality um, and are gonna be um, the information that they need to fine tune uh, or train their model for that specific yeah. task. I think it's kind of interesting, maybe to pause here as well, like mm -hmm. the, the call out to like synthetic data being used to train this model, but high quality synthetic data mm -hmm. with labels, with, you know, sort of reviewing the data going in, using an LLM to do some of the labeling as well in some cases. Yeah. Like, any any thoughts or insights on on like, you know, the like I actually really like that the code example is is pretty interesting. I know we're going to talk about another yeah. one, too, but. Like, you're right, this is just so much more readable versus, you know, a large language model, you would think just keep stuffing more and more data in that, yeah. you know, like the scaling laws will sort of work out. But here it's super curated and even LLM generated, uh, you know, mm -hmm. synthetic data. So it's kind of an interesting insight there. Yeah, and it's super interesting too, because what I appreciated was their call out to the fact that you need to ensure that these examples are diverse and they're not repetitive. And that's something that kind of goes against the laws of LLMs, right, mm -hmm. to a certain degree agree they're built um, to be very predictable. They um, give a lot of the same examples over and over again, use the same kind of verbiage over and over again. Um, and so they actually made it a point to inject some randomness into this so that not only are they having these high quality, but they are diverse, which is going to be really important um, for any of these or any model that you try to implement this kind of training with. So I thought that was really interesting and important because that was one of my first kind of thoughts was like, okay, are you just going to get the same textbook that's maybe the same words, just rearranged slightly different? Um, like, how are you going to really mimic what you would get out of like a real textbook? Um, and also ensure that, you know, we're not just kind of exposing this new model to just like the same knowledge that the, the LM that was used to create the textbook um, had. So I, I thought it was a really interesting approach. And I'm glad that they made that call out because I do think it's important to be able to kind of reproduce these results. Yeah, totally. It, it feels like a lot more approachable and from a reproducibility perspective than like mm -hmm. just keep shoving data in and, and throwing a bunch of compute. And then do yeah. you want to hit on the last, uh, last uh, sort of data that they use for coding? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. So this is synthetic code exercises. So very similar to that last bit that we just covered, except here, this is going to be given basically a doc string uh, that the LLM like needs to complete. You can think of if you have a, a textbook from you know, college, high school, any of those where you're, or even if you're learning to code now, um, there's always exercises in the back of the book that you can work on to see if you can test your knowledge. And so they use a synthetic set of data for that as well. Um, and so again, they use GPT 3.5 for these. Um, and uh, they just kind of, again, try to make sure that they had a diverse sample um, so that they could really optimize uh, this training data. Yeah, super cool. I almost think that um, there are some, I mean, the, maybe not surprising is the parallels in learning to like human learning as well, right? So yeah. you have your you have your examples, you have your sort of like textbook and then, you know, textbook and code and, and exercises. So it's kind of like literally going through like, what does a student need? They need like the material, the reference material exercises to reinforce um, and, and I think that's, that's like a really kind of salient point here that if you actually just structure your training data, uh, in such a way that it, it almost like resembles what you would want to teach someone or human, like that's, that's kind of, you know, it kind of maps pretty well to this task as well. Absolutely. And I always appreciate like when they even put it in that kind of human, um, relationship because it, it makes it almost easier for us to understand like how these models are working and like why this is successful. Yeah. So um, pretty cool stuff. Yeah. So filtered code database, synthetic textbooks, synthetic code exercises. This is how they get, you know, pretty interesting, per interestingly high performance on coding tasks, which we'll cover in just a sec as well. Mm -hmm. um, cool. Um, yeah. So, so why is Spy 2 exciting? So I, I think um, we'll get into sort of like the, you know, the performance of the model as well in just a moment. But, um, you know, the, the main takeaways from the the authors and from the initial sort of benchmarking is that the performance is really, really high. It's better than a lot of models that have more parameters, um, which is sort of, you know, goes, it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, in fact, the papers or like the blog posts, the authors kind of call out, you know, this is sort of a uh, a way of, you know, uh, sort of like going or pushing back against like scaling laws. Like you must, you know, the scaling law is like you just keep throwing more data, you'll get higher performance. You know, more parameters means better performance. This is a little bit, you know, counterintuitive in that it's actually counter to to what the the conventional scaling laws that we've kind of known, um, you know, or expected transformers to perform with. Um, it it makes a it makes a really strong case for for training with with high quality data sets. Um, uh, on the knowledge transfer bit, Talian, do you have any, any kind of note on, on that piece? And I'll jump over. Yeah, it, they, um, actually, so that, that model we were just talking about that Phi 1.5 that they, um, took or they, they worked on in um, textbooks is all you need. They actually did a knowledge transfer into Phi 2.5 or two, uh, which I thought was really interesting. And they, they did see, um, some improved, um, performance from 1.5 just after and up to after doing that knowledge transfer. So I think this is going to be a key technique uh, for these small language models is them kind of building on their previous progress. Um, and so um, that I think that's really just the the note there is that's something that you'll see is common because um, it, it accelerates training, but then it also boosts, you know, performance. So I think yeah. it's a, a key component of these models. Yeah. And then I think that the call out to like synthetic data, data generation as well as part of the training mm -hmm. set um, is is not a first, but it's one of the it's it's a good kind of like example um, sort of that reinforces that that would be, you know, wh wherever we're going to see more of these efficiency gains of high quality data, uh, you'll probably want to generate or, or at least augment your data set with synthetic data as well. 
And what's interesting here too is, you know, with the textbooks all you need for you know, Phi 1 and 1.5, that was very specific to coding. Um, for Phi 2, they did kind of expand that. So there were um, examples of like reasoning and general knowledge that were science, like daily activities, theory of mind. Like they, they expanded on that with not using as much of a, a narrow um, set of data. So I think it's kind of interesting to see that even when you expand um, um, like the breadth of knowledge that you're passing in, as long as you kind of adhere to that high quality, um it does pay off yeah awesome um yeah and then i know you have the context extension note and i'm gonna come i'm actually gonna come back to that in just a moment with what does that mean you know we, we mentioned that mm -hmm. there's some one of the limitations of this model is the number of of contact of the context window um but there's some really interesting research going on there as well so i figure we could just jump into uh, a little bit from the you know the authors themselves the contributors themselves um and, and I wanted to call out a couple of interesting things. Um, so at the top, they do mention that, you know, Phi2 is available in Azure AI Studio model catalog. So you can actually go and download the model directly. Um, you just have to make it. I mean, you, you can get, you know, the Hugging Face sort of version as well. They do have it up in Hugging Face. But you can get sort of the, all of the raw files that you need to deploy the model straight from Azure Studio. So I thought that was kind of, you know, it was cool that they're actually like pushing towards more of an open source initiative here. Uh, it's MIT licensed. Um, so so it's actually you know, you can use it for commercial commercial use as well in that way, um, uh, is, is my understanding. Um, so, um, and yeah, so so these were some of the benchmarks that, you know, so in here they're they're comparing Phi 1.5, which is 1.3 billion parameters to Phi 2, 2.7 billion. So they are, you know, doubling the number of, of parameters. Um, but, uh, you know, you see that boost and sort of, uh, you know, obviously like the math and coding tasks, um, and and that's like kind of where we we were hitting home on a lot of the training data, but also if you expand that breadth of knowledge uh, or expand that breadth of you know information that you're sort of encoding in the model, you'll see improvements in the sort of reasoning and language understanding tasks. Um, I wanted to jump into so th this was kind of interesting to me as well. Uh, the training for Phi two took fourteen days on ninety six A one hundreds. Obviously, that's like you know that's a that's a significant rig. Um, that's not a that's not like a you know, like, uh, but but I do think that from a research lab perspective, that that's kind of, you know, interestingly, like, you know, if, if you're, it, when you think about it, it's not like, this took, you know, weeks or months to train on, you know, hundreds and hundreds of GPUs, like, fields very, uh, fields in some way, like high quality, like, you know, very well optimized training as well. So that was kind of um, impressive 1.4 trillion tokens, um, the total set. Um, uh, and then, um, yeah, I think this this kind of makes sense. To, and then I wanted to call out the, uh, I think that there was a note um, on the scaling law piece. Um, yeah, here, oh, I just saw it. So yeah, our key insights for breaking the conventional language model scaling laws with five two are twofold. So I mean, they're they're sort of like there. That is a bit of a of a sort of, you know, maybe a hot take, um, but it is interesting to sort of see the author sort of calling out that they're, you know, trying to, that, that's the intention here is trying to break the conventional um, wisdom around scaling laws. Um, it's interesting to just add one more note to that. Like they are firm on, they believe that one of the key components of that is just that like textbooks, all you need, like they, um, they give a lot of credit to that being the reason why they're able to overcome. So I think that's, it's interesting. And I think it seems like they're doubling down on that approach. So I'm excited to see what else comes out of that. Yep. Yep. And then I do, this was also, I almost missed this one, but um, 
This was also interesting. So uh, Mistral and Mixtral, we covered you know, a couple of weeks ago. A lot of models now are sort of undergoing RLHF um, instruction fine-tuning. Uh, it was interesting. The Phi 2 did not undergo any alignment. So you can get the mm -hmm. base model. You can fine-tune it for alignment if you want. Um, but it, it doesn't come out of the box instruction fine-tuned, which is interesting as well. Um, and so all of the benchmarks you see are actually going to be based on that base model, not even an instruction fine-tuned model, which is kind of interesting mm -hmm. too. Um, so let, let's talk about benchmarks. So uh, so the, the authors make some claims here, uh, which are pretty interesting. Um, we evaluated FI2 using several Microsoft internal proprietary data sets and tasks. Uh, and they, they mentioned the textbooks approach and the training data, but it is interesting that they use some open source, um, you know, sort of. So these are sort of the you know, the the sort of common sense reasoning, language understanding, these are not you know, math encoding, these are the the sort of Microsoft internal proprietary tasks. Um, so that's, you know, for, for what it's worth, that's something to take as it is that, um, you know, that that the, the that, you know, these these benchmarks are, are are a little bit different than the ones that you might have seen up here with like how a swag, human eval, et cetera, as well. Um, so yeah, interesting, but um, you know, it depends on how that 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 data set those data sets are curated. Um, but it is cool to see at least, you know, presumably on the same tasks, you see Phi two sort of outperforming Mistral, you see it outperforming Llama two, uh, in most cases up until about seventy B um, for so it kind of surpasses seven B and thirteen B. They do also make a comparison to Gemini Nano two. Um, you know, I, I think I think. We're, you know, we, we kind of covered this in the Gemini paper last week, but it looks like, um, you know, it, it, you know, it really depends on like a lot of different things around um, inference and performance of like why you might want to use Gemini Nano too. But it is interesting that they sort of call out that, you know, from the API, they, they did kind of access it, ran it on the same benchmarks as well. Then they go, the, 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 the sort of authors go through a couple of examples here of like math, almost like math tasks, similar to, to, to Gemini's uh, example as well. Of like, here's a, in a math task, like explain, you know, what's going on here. Uh, and it does reason about a simple physics problem um, and, you know, from something rather ambiguous, which is, which is pretty cool to see. Um, yeah, and that, that's sort of the, I mean, that's really it. They, they don't go, there's not a, a, a full, I mean, the textbooks are all you need um, paper is probably where you get a little bit more of the the technical meat, but um, but yeah, from a from a performance standpoint, this is this is what the authors posted, and then the textbooks are all you need. Part one and two are actually you know five five one point five, so there's no technical report for five two specifically. They just mentioned that they're kind of taking the same approach and then scaling it up, um, scaling up the number of parameters to get to five two. But it would be great to to dive a little bit deeper on that too, should that become public. Anything else you wanted to add on the paper note, uh, Sally? And if not, maybe we can jump into sort of the deployment piece. Yeah, I guess the one other thing that I um, made note of on, on my end was the fact that they they mentioned that they they didn't use reinforcement learning from human feedback. And one of the intentions of doing that was um, so we could provide uh, more research into the like vital like safety challenges, like the toxicity report that they put in the blog um, and just kind of understanding like the societal biases, which I think are, is really important. And I don't see a lot of um 
mm-hmm. research teams kind of calling that out. So um, I'm definitely super interested in you know AI ethics and how we are can be like socially responsible with these models. So it's cool to see that they're they're calling that out, and um, I'll definitely be watching to see how researchers take this model and uh, apply it in that specific context. Yeah. So that's in the in the technical report. Um, you're calling out where they mentioned that that as a section. Yeah, I think it's both here and in the blog actually for Fi too. They mentioned it right where they where they bring up the fact that um, it's not um, using the reinforcement learning from human feedback. Oh, right, right, right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the so less of that bias is what you're what you're kind of getting at with that point from like humans. Yeah. Yeah. You you can see it's just basically kind of. Um, the fact yeah. that it's not restricted because they don't use that that reinforcement learning it's it's unrestricted so it kind of gives researchers a really good opportunity to research into these kind of um ethics kind of areas of the model and understand a little bit better about what societal biases exist without that reinforcement learning um how we can enhance like controllability um and how just we can make sure that our lms or slms are not uh, responding toxically Yep, yep. And that's and they call out as well as well, like the performance on Toxigen, I think, in the mm-hmm. report, um, which was yep. which is a, a well known sort of yeah, I think this was the call out to that on yep. toxicity. Um, so yeah, seems to perform, you know, pretty well on it compared to even the some others other open source models. And that could be because like you're saying, like they're getting it's getting high quality data. It's not being influenced by the bad stuff that you see on the internet oftentimes from large amounts of right. data um, and other sources that GPT-4 and others are are being trained on as well. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. Looks like we have a couple questions. Maybe we can we can take these and then we'll jump into deployment, which is really exciting. We'll have a little demo there. Um, so the first one is we have S- we have LMs and LMs. What is the purpose of SLMs? So be, I think Sridhar, we'll, what we kind of covered in the beginning is um, you know, SLMs, SLMs have some, uh, you know, major sort of, uh, you know, benefits to use over LLMs in terms of number of parameters and efficiency of the model. They're they're much less computationally heavy for things like inference and fine tuning. Um, and then if you have specific domain tasks, you can get pretty high performance on things like coding or math, depending on the model you want to use. Um, you know, so highly recommend checking out the paper that sort of makes that case as well. Um, and then Johnny Lin says, as a user of these models, does it matter that the training of these SLM models takes less time? Um, I mean, I think so. I mean, I, what what I would iterate on, uh, Johnny, is is actually like the um, fine tuning, and then also you know future iterations on Phi two will probably go pretty fast relative to larger language models. So you might see like very specific performance bumps and specific domains. So, you know, maybe within coding, you could say, let's just train it on like front end, you know, code or, or you know, web web dev code. Like maybe you'll get a really high performance, you know, specific l- small language model faster than you'll get a generalized large language model um, from a training perspective. So I think that's pretty exciting to see. Will we see more emerging small language models because they are easier to train? So from a consumer standpoint, you know, depending on the task that you pick. Um, that could be, you know, something to to keep an eye out on as well. Um, and then the cost as well for for inference of these is is uh, you know a major benefit on which is correlated to training. Um, 
Thanks so much for walking through this paper. If I understand correctly, this model was trained largely on synthetic data, textbooks with math and coding problems. For those synthetically generated problems, how do they verify the correctness of these synthetic textbooks? Um, yeah, great point. Uh, I think the authors do talk about that. I just had it up. Um, yeah, I believe they do some evaluations with you know other LLMs uh, for this. Um, and that's kind of part, they do kind of that random spot checking manually. And then they also are then relying on um, LLM evals uh, to assess that as well. And there's definitely, I guess, an argument to be to be made of is that um, the proper way to ensure correctness because um, it could be wrong twice, but um, they make great efforts to make sure that they're using only correct um, information. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like uh, they they also kept the, because they've kept the training set rather low, like it kind of helps them, you know, we point out that on, the only non-synthetic partner training data consists of 6 billion of filtered code data set, which was the first part that we talked about. Uh, and then the rest is all synthetic. So yeah, I mean, it is an interesting point to see, you know, how much they don't, I don't think the authors talk about too much about the evals they use specifically there, but um but it would be interesting to to learn more about that as well. Um, should they release more information on the training data set itself? But this is about all we have to go off of at the moment. Um, cool. Um, would SLMs, so Ayush asked, would SLMs be more or less prone to prompt injections or adversarial attacks based on how they are trained on very specific data? I assume it would be harder to exploit it into performing malicious tasks because there are not as many threats within the training data but I'm curious to hear your opinions. Um, that's an interesting speculation. I'm not sure. Yes, Elian, do you want to, do you have any thoughts on this one? I, I My initial take is, is uh, I, I would be, I would wait and see um, what the exploits would be for, for these types of models. They might not resemble the same as like a GPT-4 type of prompt injection where you can kind of get away with, you know, kind of tricking the model in some way, um, but they might look different and you might still get, you know, some type of, some type of exploit here. Yeah, I, I agree with your kind of sentiment there that it's kind of early to know for sure what that uh, landscape is going to look like. Um, I think that there's always kind of the opportunity uh, to get these models to perform uh, malicious tasks just by their nature. Um, so I think I, I agree. It's it's hard to say exactly what it's going to look like, but I don't think I would say that it's impossible for them to be exploited. Yeah, maybe said another way. The model is going to be less capable on general tasks in the first place. So mm -hmm. compared to an LLM. So even if you are trying to get it to do something, it may not reason as well about even, you know, like spouting out in internal parameters very well. Um, so yeah, the the internal parameters that it has or the tokens it has might be might be less harmful in some way, but they admit you may also just not get a very meaningful response to a potentially, you know, high complexity type of exploit in the first place. So you may just get, you know, garbage, garbage out in some way in that case. Um, yeah, this will be an interesting kind of topic to kind of follow um, and see uh, where research goes with it. Yeah, totally. All right. Should we do the live part? I think we've got about 14 minutes left. Um, I figure yeah. we can. So we've covered benchmarks and yeah, we can get into deployment. Did you want to kind of share your screen on LM Studio or should I go ahead and do that? Yeah, um, you can go ahead and you're sharing already and make it easy. <laughs> okay, cool. Got it. I'll, I'll actually share my whole screen. So what I thought we could do is actually make this a little interactive for folks. So we have a couple of tools up that might be 
um, kind of interesting for people here um, that haven't seen this before. So there are two tools that you can use to actually download these models and run them on your own um, your own hardware, actually, because we've what we've been kind of hitting home is that these are small language models. Their technical requirements, their hardware requirements are actually much lower than, um, you know, something like uh, like a like a GPT-4. That means that you can actually um, deploy smaller versions of these models. Think of these as quantized versions. Um, quantization is basically reducing the precisions of a model's calculations to make it more efficient. So let's think of it as an even more slimmed down version of a small language model to be optimized to run locally. There are two tools that you can use here. Um, one of them is open source. So if you'd prefer to use the open source route, there's a tool called Olama. Uh, it's really easy to get started with. You just go straight onto their, uh, onto their website. Oh, I didn't mean to download that one again. Um, okay. Um, but you can go straight to Olama um, as well. And, and you know, the, the open source component of this is like all the code is open source. So you know exactly, you know, there, there's no, the, the application runs runs fully locally. I'm going to show that one first, actually. Um, so I have it running in um, VS Code right now. Um, yeah, awesome. Thanks, Sarah. Um, and it's really easy to get started. So you basically, you, you know, you, you install Olama, you run the application, and then you can just click Olama run. And they have a number of models already ready to go. So you can go to any of these and, you know, you could run Mistral. If you scroll down, you'll see um, Phi as well, Phi 2. And you basically run this command, Olama run Phi. And it's going to I'll actually kind of exit this um, to just sort of kill it for you and just sort of show what that looks like immediately. Olama, and hopefully folks can see that, um, you know, I'll try and make my, my code a bit bigger. Um, but this is running in a terminal, run this command. It's actually going to interact with the uh, CPP, which is the Llama parameters uh, directly, just like how you would want to package up the model in the first place. They actually download it from some source. Um, I believe it's Hugging Face, um, but I might be that one. Don't you know? Don't fact check me on that one. They're they're hosting the model in some way. Looks like they reference Hugging Face here, um, and then basically you can start running commands on it directly. So. Um, so this is actually, if I type this in, hello, can you help me find my way to Toronto? Um, it actually gives a response. This is running locally. I don't need my internet connection. Um, so it's actually inferencing directly with Phi2 on my machine. Um, so now this is a pretty general task. So I could say, um, you know, something more specific. So one thing you'll notice is it's not instruction fine-tuned. It's going to keep spouting parameters. You can You can actually tune the amount of tokens you wanted to produce. And all of those parameters are actually tunable. Amount of tokens um, that it should output, um, the weight, the temperature, et cetera. So the things you would expect to be able to tune with an LLM. Um, let's, try to, let's try to run another command. So maybe like um, write some code that computes, you know, two plus two or something like that. Um, okay, well, it doesn't compute it, but it does actually print it out. And so it'd be like some Python code, like Python, um, code to, I don't know, any, any tasks come to mind, Sally? And we can see we're sort of a live demo. So we're going <laughs> to. You know what I did on uh, last night? I did one that was like, give me a function that um, prints a letter based on a user's or a letter of the alphabet based on a user's index or something like that. Oh, okay. 
something random. It was hard. It's hard to think of those simple functions on the yeah. phone. Like, you think Let's it'd see. be easier. There you go. That's better than the one I got last night. Last night, okay, it just okay. gave me a, a list and it just took an index from the list. Or it was just a yeah, string. So, yeah. yeah so it's, okay, so it just prints A right now, else input out of range. So right now, it just works for like the letter A, but okay. So, and then you can okay. kind of provide that. Yeah. Um, uh, a I guess that's our, our prompt index. issue. It probably wasn't clear. A letter yep. It's probably. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting. The letter A, yeah. So, uh, so I mean, but it's really cool to see, like, if you give it a well constrained, you know, I one thing we still need to iterate on, I think our, ourselves is like, actually use this um, in terms of like, you know, as a co-pilot that runs locally and mm -hmm. hook it up. Um, I've seen some extensions that let you actually reference. You know, there's a number of co-pilot extensions out there now that run directly in your IDE. You can actually point them to a local version of your model. And they would inference mm -hmm. all on your machine. Um, so that's something I've been wanting to try out myself as well. Um, yeah. Um, cool. And then um, and then there's a couple of things you can do um, with the API as well. So you because this model is running uh, locally, you can actually, um, once you have this running up, you can actually use Olama's API. And you can actually curl and, and hit, or so I think actually, sorry, this is, yeah, this is going to work on, yeah, your local host. So you can actually. Um, set up a, you know, localhost sort of, uh, you know, this model actually running directly for inference. Um, and you can, you can use, you know, basically code completion, basically very similar to what you would be doing with like an open AI type of interface. So pretty cool. Um, the other tool I wanted to sort of show is, is a, so now this is closed source. Uh, it's a fancy, it's, it's sort of a, it's a much more UI centric focused flow around a similar task of being able to uh, iterate with local LLMs, run them locally. Um, so this does point to Hugging Face. So if I'd search by two, um, I'll get a bunch of different quantizations. So remember what we talked about before, if I pick certain lower precisions or lower quantizations, I'm gonna get a loss of quality, but my model artifact is gonna be a lot smaller, 1.17 gigs. If I want higher quality and higher precision, my model gets a little bit larger. It's going to take a little bit more CPU and GPU to run on my local machine. This I'm running this on an M1 Mac right now for context, if people are following along. Um, but and then you can get different versions of that model, different fine tunes of that, you know, different fine tunes of that model. It's pointing directly to Hugging Face Hub. Um, so if you wanted to host your own model, you could also reference it from LM Studio. Um, so it's it's pretty cool. I mean, I think you can get. I mean, the, the interface is really pretty pretty awesome. So I have a version of Phi to um, with these sort of quantization parameters running. You know, with my you know as a file locally, I can actually chat with it directly here as well. So this is again sort of the same thing. Let's say uh, let's see let's see if it if it gives the same response. So this is a quantized version now. It's a different version than the base version of the model that I was running in my Olama terminal. Um, no pre prompt, just running directly on. Uh, let's see if it, if it works. There you go. So actually, that gives a little bit better of a response. Um, so it goes through multiple. Okay, let's see. Actually, let me read this a little bit more closely. Letters, ABCDE, if zero index is less than the length of the array, print. Okay, actually, that doesn't seem... I don't, we gave it a, like a basically a nonsensical coding task. We but, probably need to do some prompt engineering. It's yeah, probably a little yeah. bit of our fault, but yeah, um, um, it is really interesting to see to just do that that prompt. And I what I really liked about the Elm Studio is those options kind of over on the right that you can get a little specific with it. 
Um, there's even the option to like leverage that GPU um, from mm-hmm. your Mac. So it's it's super cool. Um, if you are playing around with this live and you want to check out um, these models on Hugging Face, um, this publisher actually gives you kind of some description of each of the quantized versions that can kind of help you pick uh, which might be best for your task. Kind of highlights um, what where the trade-offs are for that quantization. Yeah, you get a lot of you get a lot of like extra sort of things here around like time to first token speed uh your gpu and cpu usage token count etc and, and yeah the ui is definitely get the context length here um which i don't think yeah okay so yeah. you're actually so this is this is what you get so this is probably one of the last points i think we'll touch on here so this is super cool um you can add presets to the model you can do things like pre-prompted as well each model has its own pre uh presets that you can use the presets are you know things like i mentioned before the the um Maybe I can just open one um, as an example, but it's basically, you know, how I would, uh, you know, what is the input prefix the uh, you know, authors recommend using instruct and output for input and, and input prefix and suffix to, to kind of bound your, your prompt. You can add a pre-prompt, you know, you're an assistant trained to do X, Y, Z, uh, and then you can, you know, of course, just change other parameters as well. Um, Cool. And then uh, I did want to touch on the context length. Uh, and yeah, and you can use GPU acceleration, which is pretty cool. Um, and then also you can host it through LM Studio, which was a lot of fun. Actually, we did a, you know, you can you can basically start up a server, um, run this on your machine, you know, and you have, there you go, you have a model running on your machine. Um, um, cool. Uh, let me see if there was anything else um, on any of the tabs here. Yeah, this was like print prime. This was an example, I think, that um, I was trying to run with Google's Gemini. So this was kind of the last one of the last things I want to point out, which was there's some very emerging um, research and work that people are doing to actually extend um, the context lengths that these small language models can can basically take. Um, so I think this was some, yeah long lm i think was the work here so you can self-extend the token limits and basically um you know this is i i think this is something we wanted to dig into a little bit more but if you take one of these off the shelf small language models and you continuously extend the token limit basically transferring the previous call to a new call and kind of continuously doing that you can actually get what it looks like to be some pretty interesting results so i do want to call out that you know uh, like we we do say that you know context extension is is something that we're going to keep an eye on as well. It makes it kind of interesting to look at in the future um, for these smaller language models. Uh, okay, we have one question: When using models locally in Olama or LM Studio, do they retain conversation context for subsequent questions in the same session? Yeah, great question. They they do, I believe. Um, in my understanding, is this is all one chat context. Um, so let's let's actually test it out ourselves. Um, and if not, I think that that might be a parameter. It looks like I have to reload model. Okay. Um, let's see if this works. So I'm going to load it back in. I believe that they do, but we're, we'll test it out as well. Um, okay.
Okay. Well, and interestingly, it does say the result of the con. <laughs> so I mean, the the prompt doesn't uh doesn't you know the the prompt I just provided doesn't really give a great response, but it does actually prove the point of you know the the Python function sort of retaining in the the context window. So it is one session running. I think I be maybe because I was messing with some of the parameters, um, it, you know, the that this request didn't um, pass through correctly. But we do kind of underscore the point of um their you know the retained contacts cool um that was i think all we had anything else there sally Ann, you wanted to to hit home on no i think just the the local deployment as we touched on earlier i'm really excited to see what applications come from that it just kind of just opened up the possibility of these um slms being deployed on the edge um so lots of cool use cases i think are to come yeah, and you can expect more on the eval side from Arise, more around how to monitor these models. If you're running these deployments locally, you know, monitoring what the outputs are, how to evaluate them. A um, lot more tooling coming from us as well in that space, uh, especially from an open source tooling perspective with Phoenix. So, you know, expect that you'll be able to, to have tracing, monitoring, and evals on these SLMs once you start experimenting with them. And if you have any feedback, feel free to drop us a note on, on Twitter or on, on LinkedIn. Um, we're happy to, to take any feedback on how these sessions are going, what, what you liked, what you didn't like, and then also you know, what you'd like to see in future ones too. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining. Um, it was great having, having you all, and thanks for all the great questions. Thanks, everyone.